0: Friday and welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. The rundown of the day's news in my morning newsletter, Morning Shots. So I'm, sort of, I'm trying to capture all the stuff that's going on at the same time in the last 24 hours. Biden pardons thousands convicted of marijuana possession under federal law. And because I guess he didn't think he was making enough news, he also warned that the risk of nuclear Armageddon is the highest since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Hmm. Shouldn't have read that right before I went to bed last night. Uh, Proud Boys member pleads guilty to seditious conspiracy for his role in January 6th, which is a BFD. Uh, federal agents see chargeable tax gun purchase case against Hunter Biden. Down in Georgia, the Fulton County prosecutor investigating Trump aims for indictments as soon as December. And also in Georgia, Searching for a safe, unskeptical media space, Herschel Walker sought out the moisty bosom of Hugh Hewitt's hackery, and it did not disappoint. And then, of course, we had the story that Ben Sass is quitting the Senate with four years left on his term uh, to become the new president of the University of Florida. We also got new jobs numbers this morning, indicating that the economy is still strong, underlining the Fed's problem in fighting inflation. So, to talk about all of this, who better than my colleague Bill Kristol? Bill, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Uh, Charlie, I'm sort of intimidated by
1: that introduction. Do we have to cover 14 yep. topics here and in with depth and intelligence and and uh, you know precision? That's going to be hard.
0: Okay, so give me your take though on the president. Talking about the risk of nuclear Armageddon, uh, th- there's there's an interesting divide. People saying, OK, you know, this is pretty clear eyed warning um, where we're at here with uh, Vladimir Putin pushed into the corner. Obviously, things going extremely badly in Ukraine versus uh, people who are saying this is this is another Biden gaffe, that he shouldn't be saying stuff like this. This is going to rattle the world. I also saw some speculation. Well, this is the president of the United States who may have more intelligence, which is even more worrying. So. What did you th- what do you make of this Joe Biden basically saying, "Hey, things are you think things are bad? actually, it's worse,
1: yeah, I guess I'm inclined generally in these circumstances to think maybe presidents shouldn't they're not sure they should just keep quiet and um, but maybe he really does feel that it's important to prepare people for the i don't know one in ten one in twenty chance that Putin will do something extreme, and he's presumably has people in the u s government thinking through. Uh, our options and plans to to respond so i in that respect maybe it isn't such a bad thing to get people uh, to take seriously the threat i I hope it doesn't lead people to be intimidated Mm -hmm. you could argue that biden's sort of playing into putin's hands a little bit by uh, magnifying the nuclear card as if that sort of stops should stop us from doing things but on the other hand we've done an awful lot so yeah i guess i give biden's done a good enough job managing ukraine that i i give him the benefit of the doubt on this particular comment
0: So uh, as you know, I I try to resist any sort of irrational exuberance, but the reports out of Ukraine and Russia in the last 24 hours are really kind of amazing. Uh, The the stories about The dissension within the ranks of the Russian government, uh, people confronting Vladimir Putin, it's not just now military bloggers who are ripping the military. You're actually having military officials. And these are not, you know, anonymous source stories. These are, you know, the New York Times story yesterday really brought the receipts, you know, military officials who had been appointed by. Vladimir Putin suggesting the defense secretary should commit suicide. We have this big report in the Washington Post this morning that Vladimir Putin was confronted, you know, by people within within the government. You know, there's there's real panic and real division in the Russian government. Of course, it's a closed box. We don't actually know. But what do you make of these reports?
1: I spoke with someone in Central Europe yesterday who's working closely with the Ukrainians. And He says they think it's real i mean they're they're, uh, you know you lose a war this badly and and one that you've assumed you would win within a week uh, and one that you personally sort of led the country into without much consensus or much sense of a need for it among uh, others in the elites let alone the public and you're at some risk and i mean history suggests that and i think that would make sense obviously putin's beaten back an awful lot of threats in the past and is ruthless and clever in his way about this but let me tie it into the nuclear discussion we just had a minute ago i hope we are being and i i'm sure we are doing our best to make sure that if putin tries to use nuclear weapons he doesn't succeed i mean that's to say we have a fair amount of ability probably to get into his chain of command to disrupt it to warn people in that chain that they will be held personally accountable if there's a use of nuclear weapons whatever putin says in the kremlin you know there are ways i i, I just hope we're not as I said, I'm pretty sure we're not just watching this or hoping that we're acting both on the nuclear threat and then also to increase dissension and disruption in the ruling circles of of, of, of Russia, of the Kremlin. Short term, it, you know, Putin could be replaced by someone equally nasty and and uh, dangerous in some ways. That could be even a more danger mm-hmm. of a spasm, I suppose, in a sense as he uh, is on his way out. But it's got to be a good thing to have a dissent and dissension and disruption of Putin's own rule. And it offers some prospect of a happier future for Russia, to say nothing of, of them just leaving Ukraine. So I, I, it is amazing what Ukraine has done, what Zelensky has done, yes, the degree to which other leaders have rallied to him. I struck uh, the, the, the young prime minister of uh, Finland, had an ex- excellent comment at that European summit in Prague, yesterday the, someone said well we have, what's the off-ramp for putin and she said uh, you know the off-ramp is to leave ukraine i mean for all the talk about the decadence of liberal democracies and failures of leadership and all the problems we have and god knows we do uh, there are quite a lot of impressive younger leaders of liberal democracies it is. Uh, we have someone who Pretty impressive, older leader in our yeah. case, but maybe younger next generation will come along. So it, it sort of re- cheers me up a little bit about the about the future.
0: You know, this is a good point because there are a lot of reasons to wring your hands about you know the decline or the decadence of you know Western democracy, but these prime ministers on the front line are really extraordinary. And I, I, I was struck by the same thing that you were the this very very young woman who is the prime minister of of Finland. I mean, Finland is right there. I mean, there's a long history. <laughs> of wars there. And she is just unblinking. The solid refusal to blink in any way is really impressive. And these are people with a lot to lose and they know there's a lot to lose. And yet they're not shutting up. They're not putting their heads down. They are saying these things. And frankly, that that is inspiring.
1: Yeah, very much so. And Zelensky obviously is the first among equals in this. And uh, yeah, I really do wonder if the the um it's terrible the you know the deaths and the tortures and the war crimes and everything else that's that ukraine has gone through but uh and and russians have suffered too of course but in retrospect putin's invasion of ukraine and the reaction to it above all by the ukrainians but by the rest of us as well could end up being a real inflection point you know a real moment uh, in the p- post-cold war post-cold war history and 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 in some ways a hopeful one for all as i say that no one wishes it to have happened but so i, I, I do think it's uh, we're in the middle of it it's hard to judge obviously things could go wrong or it could just sort of peter out and to be another kind of episode you might say but it feels like 2022 could be a big year in that respect
0: well, I was just mention also that the Nobel Prize was awarded um, Friday morning to a trio of human rights defenders in Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia, delivering another pointed international rebuke of President Vladimir Putin and his war in Ukraine. So I think that that is uh, positive. OK, so from from this deep substance um, that we've been talking about, okay, I, Bill, I, I need you to explain something because I'm, you know, usually I kind of have a sense of what's going on or I understand, or I think I can understand the context, or I could Google it in a few minutes and, and you know, things will become clear. I need you to explain to me something that, a, a tweet from the House Judiciary GOP last night. You saw this, right? I did. Okay. Now, this is not a, a super PAC. This is not, this is not the Federalist. This is the official Twitter account of republicans on the house judiciary committee and it is a, the tweet is just three words kanye elon trump bill help me here <laughs> what's yeah. what's, what, what's going on you know
1: it's uh, some clever person on the staff there of the house republicans who, who got bored with you know planning the investigation of hunter biden for next year and decided to be cute on twitter i i don't know i, I guess they're all three Uh, I guess Kanye was on Tucker Carlson's show, and Elon Musk has been pro Trump in various ways, pro Putin in various ways, which fits into being pro Trump. So, those are the three.
0: We're supposed to be. We are triggered. So, but I mean, Wink and Blinken nod, just you don't even know. These are the three people they look up
1: to, I I guess. I mean, uh, that's in a way. Curly, Shep, what? I'm. Yeah. No, the three stooges, (laughs) the three witches. I was thinking of this Tinker Evers Chance, you know, for those of us. It's. yeah, we should all play games now. We should all think of trios that we, so, or you know, that we like to mention. But I don't know what can what can I well, say? I mean, it's like every time you think these people are, well,
0: whatever. Well, let's uh, speaking of these people, you know, watching what's happening down in Georgia is a little bit with the like the fascination of watching a car crash involving clown cars. But, but Herschel Walker. Goes on Hugh Hewitt's show yesterday and spins himself uh, this word salad. He's then uh, asked by reporters about the reports that, of course, you knew the woman whose abortion you paid for because she's the mother of one of your children. And we get a lot of argle bargle. You know, there's so many questions that, na- that now actually feel, will this make a difference? Is this going to make a difference in the election? So, what do you think at this point? I mean, Republicans, at least nationally, And I'm not sure what's going on with the Georgia Republicans who are close and may know what this the next shoe to drop. National Republicans are all in national right to life, all in. Anecdotally, it would seem as if Republican voters, Christian evangelical pro-lifers just don't have a problem with the fact that that Herschel Walker urged his girlfriend to get an abortion, lied about it and is about to go to the U.S. Senate. What do you think? And yeah, is manifestly unqualified to be a senator. Yes. I mean, just to, to begin with that. Um,
1: so I, I think it'll hurt some, and I think that you know I think he already was probably behind a bit. And you know, if you pry off five percent of Republican voters, maybe they don't all vote for Warnock. Half of them vote for Warnock. Half of them just skip that line of the ballot. They vote for Kemp for governor, and then just skip the Senate race. That that you know that could take a three point race to a five or six point race, and that uh, that may be what we what we end up with. I'm very struck by the reaction, though, of, of the Republican establishment, the conservative establishment, conservative elites. Uh, you and I remember we were both at the Weekly Standard then in 2017 when stories uh, came out about Roy Moore as he was running for the Senate in the special election in Alabama. So I looked this up quickly yesterday. It was like, didn't trust my memory, but I, I sort of thought that people did disavow him yeah. and chastise him. And some people even said he should step aside. So it turns out Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan, the Republican leaders of the Senate and the House both called on him to step aside mm-hmm. because of the allegations. The Senatorial Committee cut off its funding for at least a while. Lots of uh, conservative, but not all, uh, conservative uh, you know, magazines and so forth criticized Moore and said this is unacceptable or at least lamented the situation or called on him to make all the facts more available. I don't remember what National Rights of Life did and, and so forth, but there was at least some sense that, oh my God, this is really bad and this has to call into question our normal party loyalty and ideological preferences. What's so striking is that it's almost exactly five years later, right? There's almost none of that. Almost none of that. Took 12 hours, Republican senatorial uh, NRSC, the the PAC that supports Republican Senate candidates and Mitch McConnell's own PAC. We're all in, doesn't matter. And then every conservative, virtually, don't you think? Every conservative leader, every Trumpist, and even a lot of the anti-anti-trump types well look it doesn't matter he's he's a flawed person but we need the vote and that's what it's all about so the degree of degeneracy to use a word of lincoln's that i Mm -hmm. like in this context uh, of the republican party the degree to which that's progressed over the last five years is pretty striking in early trump years there was still some sense of this is kind of too far you know trump was himself problematic maybe that was an exception we can't just have this be the norm this is the norm they do not care
0: no, and this is a really interesting point. And I was asked this question last night. Would Roy Moore uh, have been elected in this in, in this election cycle? And I agreed with, with your take on this, that yes, I think absolutely he would, because you have seen the acceleration of this degeneracy for people who think it's always been like this. No, I am old enough to remember, as are you, when Todd Akin was the Republican nominee in Missouri, and he said something um, stupid and offensive about rape. Remember back then? Now, again, that was no closely divided Senate. The seat was very, very important. Republicans really wanted to win that seat. They thought they were going to win that seat and beat Claire McCaskill. And yet after Todd Akin said what he said about abortion uh, and about rape, um, they bailed on him. They yeah. And, you know, they 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 did bail on him. Then fast forward. Roy Moore just a few years ago, um, allegations of sexual assault bridge too far, but what you're seeing now, I think, is just sort of the complete, forget it. We're not even gonna pretend, go through the motions that it's about character or there's any standards whatsoever. It, this is all about you know, winning. And I mean, look, how do you look at Herschel Walker? And, and I don't wanna make fun or make light of mental illness issues, but how do you look at him and say, this man should be in the United States Senate? I mean, leave aside the abortion allegation. It's the accumulation. It is the accumulated weight. Holding guns to his ex wife's head, uh, allegations of abuse, the things that his son is saying out there, you know, about, you know, how, how what, you know, what, what an awful father he was, et, et This accumulation. And yet, National Republicans are basically saying we don't we don't care about any of that. We want control of the Senate, and 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 they say it in these very blunt terms. We just want control of the Senate, and that's all that matters.
1: And just to add one last uh, thing to your very good list there, yeah. and Walker is whatever happened in the past. He's currently lying about it. I mean, there's just yeah. no question. I think you made this point in the newsletter. Yeah. He is lying, and there's not even a sense of. Gee, you know, let's privately get Herschel to sort of say, I, I feel bad about certain things that have happened in my past, but I've changed. Uh, and, but I'm going to, you know, not going to keep on lying about the fact that I don't know who this woman is and so forth. But he's lying. He's having p- ridiculous press conferences and ludicrous interviews with Hugh Hewitt and the entire Republican establishment. Okay, they're politicians. They want to win the Senate. But how about the conservative elites? I mean, we all made fun, as I recall, of a couple of conservative outlets that semi-defended Roy Moore, more than semi perhaps, in 2017. I think the Federalist was particularly egregious. Mm -hmm. But now, I don't know. I haven't followed National Review closely. I haven't seen the journal editorial page. I don't get the sense that anyone in Conservatism, Inc. is saying this is a deal breaker or even I'm really going to chastise Herschel Walker and, incidentally, Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell for clearing the field for Herschel Walker. They're all just, you know, a little bit of grumbling. Gee, this might hurt our chances. That would be bad.
0: And that's about it. Look, it's old now to see that, you know, it's all about winning in the partisan hackery and the the tribalism. I still think it's rather striking to watch what groups like the National Right to Life are doing, which in theory have larger, deeper agenda. You would think that the National Right to Life would have a, a longer timeline they would be thinking about what do we do to change people's minds heart and minds etc and yet they clearly have also decided that they're going to embrace this this hypocrisy full on and i was looking for a piece by the pundit formerly known as Ala pundit who has just a great piece over at the dispatch where he gets at the questions that pro-lifers have to ask themselves you know and he writes, you know, the problem with electing Republicans who don't practice what they preach on abortion is that it undermines the ability of pro-lifers to persuade, which is really, I, I think, the, the heart of it. It undermines your larger moral case, your moral authority. And let's face it, moral authority ought not to be squandered if you are the National Right to Life Committee, Right.
1: No, yeah, totally, and I—that's—I haven't. I'll look up Alipantis. I can't get un—I yeah. can't get unused to calling him Alipantis. I, Al I, know. Even I, I we apologize. Now, you know, writes under his actual name, so I'll, I'll, I'll look for that. But also, my sense is—I haven't looked at every statement—that the pro-life leaders, the you know evangelical leaders and stuff, they don't even say, "Look, we deplore what Walker is right. alleged to pretty clearly did do. We think that's really bad, mm-hmm. and we wish he would not have done it, and we wish he would be more honest about what he did." Having said all that. It's our judgment that the cause of pro-life, uh, the pro-life cause will be better served by having him in the Senate than Raphael Warnock. I don't think that's, you know, I wouldn't go there. That's not my view, but I mean, I, I think it's a not, it wouldn't be a crazy thing to say. What's striking is they don't even say those first two or three sentences. They don't even deploy. I, I haven't really seen any criticism of Walker's behavior. And if you're a pro-life organization, maybe you should criticize someone who's paid for an abortion and now now claims to be strictly pro-life before you get on to making your political calculations. I think it does huge damage. I think we've seen this since obs really, I mean, Young people look at this and they're maybe ambivalent as most a lot of intelligent yeah. people are about abortion rights and how to draw lines and what the role of the state should be as opposed to persuasion and they're unsure And they just see this behavior from the official pro-life organizations the official social conservative organizations the conservative elites and they think it's all a fraud it's all just hypocrisy and why should they get take this issue an issue that should be taken seriously as a moral and you know choice, uh, that why should we take it seriously? So I think it does real damage to the pro-life cause.
0: All right, let's talk about Ben Sass. I devoted my newsletter to sort of looking ahead at you know what's to come. But let's just take a moment to look back on, you know, Ben Sass, who probably had as much potential as anyone in the Senate to be a leader, a principal leader, to be the conscience of the Senate. And he had some great moments, but he also had some just really you know cringeworthy, awful moments. you know you and I both remember when he when he voted uh, to uphold the you know clearly uh, unconstitutional emergency order right. that uh, you know Donald Trump used to uh, to shift money on the border. And then of course, um, he went completely silent in 2019, um, wanted that uh, that coveted uh, Trump endorsement tweet. He came around on the second impeachment conviction but give me your thoughts on ben sass looking back
1: i mean i got to know him some and like yeah. i had met him a little bit when he was here in the bush administration but i got to know him a little when he was running for senate in nebraska he was in a pretty tough primary and uh, i thought he was by far the most impressive of the candidates this is 2013-14 and we had I remember coffee a couple of times here in dc and talked about you know, campaign strategy and issues and so forth very interested in health care which was a very big issue at the time immediately after obamacare and uh, prospects of repealing it when the primary got elected in 2014 i was very pleased i, I had actually I did one of those conversations i do the conversations with bill crystal with uh, him after one of his books came out maybe 2016 17 the vanishing american adults like i think that was that was maybe the, that one so he was impressive um What's the phrase? You know, he could have been a contender, right? He could have. He could have made a real difference in American history. Well, I'm not sure if he would have, but he could have tried to make a real difference and he didn't. And so I'm, uh, yeah, I'm on the side of being pretty critical of what he actually did fine he doesn't want to be a senator anymore a little unclear why he ran for re-election in 2020 that it is a six he, he presumably knew it was a six-year term i guess i have a slightly old-fashioned belief that absent medical issues and so forth you probably or getting nominated for the cabinet or something you should probably mm-hmm. serve out your six-year term but i guess being president of a major state university is is that he was a college president is some place he thinks he can make more difference but he sacrificed a lot to get himself re-elected he thought he had right. trump support because he paid a primary. huge price for it didn't yes. he and that yeah. price doesn't go away. Now, it'll be interesting to see once he's out of the Senate, I assume he'll just be forward-looking. Everything's fine. There's nothing he could have done that he didn't do. You know, I assume that'll be the attitude. Will he be honest? I mean, will he say, you know what, I regret not having done certain things. You students at the University of Florida, I hope you honestly face up to some of these choices maybe better than I did under all the pressures I faced. I, I think it's unlikely that he will say that
0: well i I devoted most of my piece this morning to looking ahead at the challenge that he's going to face the test he's going to face down in Florida. It is kind of interesting I and mean, I certainly can understand why you would want to get out of you know the toxic swamp of the Republican Senate caucus uh so that you don't have to you know have lunch with Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and maybe Herschel Walker and dr oz et cetera in the in the in the, in the future. But he really has now dropped himself into the middle of the MAGA snake pit of Florida politics. I mean, this is a state that is ultra MAGA. The legislature is the the folks that are making the decisions about the University of Florida. And Florida is really distinctive at the moment because of the very, very aggressive state action, legislative action targeting academic freedom. Now, I, I just want to make it clear. Look, I understand that there's a two front war being fought on academic freedom. I've written books about this. I understand that there are folks on the left who have uh, also challenged academic freedom. I've written extensively about the speech codes and the cancel culture and the stifling intellectual environment coming from the left. That's a real thing. But in Florida, with the real distinctive nature of the attack on academic freedom is it is coming from Coercive state action, laws passed by the legislature, signed by Ron DeSantis, and have been, you know, attacked by organizations that you and I are quite familiar with, you know, like FIRE, the, you know, free speech organizations, federal judges have thrown it out saying it violates the First Amendment. I'm going to be very interested to see how Ben Sass handles this issue, whether he stands up to Ron DeSantis, or whether it turns out that he's going to be Ron DeSantis's water boy on this one.
1: Yeah, or something in between, where he kind of vaguely says, "Of course, he believes in you know diversity of viewpoints and free speech," but of course, the real problem is the left entirely. And so, you know, he's going to make sure there are some conservative professors, which would be fine at the University of Florida. But will he explicitly say, "You know what, professors should have the right of free speech, including professors at state universities"? That's kind of what DeSantis and the legislature are suggesting. Kind of, they're suggesting that they don't. They're state employees. Will Vince say, "You know what, if there's some"? Forty-two professors of English here, and one or two of them are Marxists who have some Marxist interpretation of literature. That's fine.
0: It's a big that's right
1: environment. It's yeah. a big campus. Yeah. I don't want thirty-eight of the forty-two to be Marxists. I don't want to discriminate against non-Marxists in hiring. I don't want the Marxists to uh, discriminate in their own t- classroom and grading against people who don't agree with them. And those are all perfectly good liberal education points to make. But will he really stand up for liberal education at the University of Florida?
0: Well, and it really is a pretty clear choice. Look, um, I, I I hope that he looks at what Mitch Daniels has done at Purdue, and this is the way a university president can be a significant leader on issues of higher education, speak out for free speech. But it's really going to be complicated in this Florida because of this the Stop Woke Act, which really restrict what what professors and teachers and at universities you know can say about race and gender. It, you know as fire said, you know, this stretches beyond a constitutional prohibition on compelled speech. So uh, he's going to have to take a position on this. And, and that's what's going to be interesting. So, I mean, you wonder whether he's picked for this because he's going to speak truth to power or because he won't. I mean, is he being chosen as the president, of the University of Florida, because he's going to stand up to academic, you know, for academic freedom or, or because he's going to provide cover for this attack. And again, this law is quite distinctive. And also, you mentioned this, this, the lawsuit that's going on right now, you have DeSantis, who's appealing the federal uh, judge's ruling, saying it's unconstitutional to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. And Florida is explicitly arguing that professors at public universities do not have a right to free speech when they teach. Now that case is going to be one of the landmark could be a landmark case in academic freedom and here's Ben Sass who is jumping from the frying pan of you know a deplorable Senate caucus to this right into the center of this fire yeah, I imagine he'll focus on you know
1: setting up a Great Books program and a civics education program, and also maybe online education. I think Which that's is
0: all fine. Yeah, fine, that's all and right, I'm yeah. actually
1: in favor of pretty big reforms in higher education. Yeah, I hope he does change a lot of things. The system hasn't changed in an awful long time, and it's uh, antiquated in all kinds of ways, and just inefficient, costly, of course, and, and all that the height of the iraq war i spoke at a, many colleges universities actually once or twice harassed and i uh, had a pie thrown at me and shouted at it and stuff but mostly treated fine but i would say what most impressed me what i most remember about those times is a couple of cases where you know, i spoke at the new school in new york very left-wing campus and bob Kerry, the former democratic mm-hmm. uh, senator from nebraska actually same state uh, who was then president of the new school uh came to my talk and and introduced me which was totally unnecessary it wasn't you know he didn't wasn't gonna learn anything from my talk and he is a busy guy and all this but he went out of his way to be there and to remind students and everyone else that uh, you know we believe in free speech you may not agree with bill but uh, listen to what he says respectfully ask tough questions if you wish and i remember thinking well, that's impressive right he didn't have to do yeah that. will Benz asked not just invite harvey mansfield with my teacher who i hope he does to speak at you know to give a distinguished lecture at university of florida will he also you know invite some uh, michael walzer another ex-professor of mm-hmm. mine who's a social democrat to give a, a talk so well, apart from the legal side of it i mean what kind of spirit he conveys in terms of liberal education i think is important
0: yeah, he has another chance. You know, Ben Sass has another opportunity to create a legacy. I mean, he could be a gigantic figure in higher education. Yeah. But if he does not stand up to Ron DeSantis, he will be—he'll um, be remembered as a as a very disappointing United States senator and very much a quizzling as in higher education. I don't think he wants that. I really don't think that he wants that. But it's going to be very, very tough for him. So I want to ask you about a tweet you had this morning. Because you were were feeling a little jiggy, feeling a little optimistic. So here's your prediction, your prediction. The modest GOP bear market rally over the last couple of weeks has subsided. The electoral playing field from now on either remains stable or the primary trend, which had been Democratic over the last three months, reasserts itself and Democrats do well in November. All right, Bill, explain that because I have to admit to you, I am not seeing it. But go ahead. Tell me what you are seeing that I am not seeing. Maybe I'm just
1: uh, <laughs> wish casting. And um, here's what I, what I'm reacting to. I'll put it this way: is I think an over interpretation of a this this minor Republican comeback over the last two three weeks, a bit of a reversion to the norm for an off year election like this. And so the generic ballot, which had gone from Republican plus three almost and before Dobbs went to Democratic plus two, now it's more like Democratic plus one. And it's just an, it's an interesting intellectual analytical question. Are we, is this, as I say, a bear market rally? That happens pretty often in these election cycles. And then the primary trend reasserts itself, or are we just did a new, you know, it stabilizes around where it is, or does the Republican comeback continue and the kind of red wave reappear? And I just think I've always been a skeptic, as you know, about the red wave. I I think I was a a little ahead of the curve in saying that people were overstating it six months ago and that the gap between the generic ballot and Biden's approval was striking. Biden's approval, of course, is now improved. So the gap's a little less striking, but still still there. And I just look, I guess I have talked to enough people, spoken to enough people in different uh, states and congressional districts, especially some of these House races, who have seen some polling pretty good for Democrats. They're usually doing better than Biden did in 2020. And then they quickly say, uh, uh, understandably, but we're not, you know, maybe this is overstating our vote. Maybe the polls are getting it wrong. There's a hidden Trump vote, all that's possible. But I just think analytically people have overdone the Republican comeback. And the best best example of that for me is everyone saying that the Pennsylvania Senate race is a toss up. So I kind of kept reading that. I thought, I don't know, I'm just going to look at the polls. And so I just looked at Five thirty-eight in Real Clear Politics, just a list of polls, nothing, no, no deep analysis, and the polls are anywhere from Federman plus three to Federman plus ten, and grouped around really four, five, six. So Federman, you can lose a race that you're ahead five points in a month out, no question. you foolish to assert that Federman's got it locked up. On the other hand, a race you're five points ahead in a month out is not a toss-up. And I just think the media has been so spooked, I think by 2020, the down ballot stuff, by the under counting of trump votes of course 2016 being the best example by the sense that there's this hidden trump vote out there that they're overdoing republican prospects uh right now but i could be wrong
0: yeah i mean i'm now probably a permanent skeptic after 2016 after 2018 after 2020 because we've seen this uh what appears to be kind of a systematic undercount But also part of this, you know, it tends to be that every once in a while you will have uh, the media and Democrats fall in love with a candidate who has no shot of actually winning. And if you try to point that out, there is blowback. I'm going to say something positive before I say something negative here. I continue to be impressed by Tim Ryan's uh, Senate campaign in Ohio. I don't know whether he's going to beat J.D. Vance. Uh, uh, the, Ohio has become a pretty red red state, so he's got he's got like a you know starts off with what an eight nine ten point uh, deficit, but that guy, in terms of if we want to talk about messaging, seems to really have found his stride. So it, it's going to be interesting in the after action reports to. Look at the the campaigns that were successful and maybe even losing by one point would be considered successful on some level for Tim Ryan versus the campaigns that have just crashed and burned on the launching pad.
1: No, I think that's right. I'm going to be in Ohio giving a talk actually in about 10 days, and I hope to spend, I don't know how much you can learn just hanging around and so forth, but I think I'll try to, I don't know, do a little bit of hanging around and maybe if there's an event nearby for one of the candidates or even a congressional candidate, just to get a sense of the mood there. I, I would say, just before you give me our negative, flip side, you know what I'm about to say. Now. My only analytical point, I guess, I would make. To bet butchers by general kind of who knows and you know i think the, the media has been a little too credulous about republican claims i was bending over backwards the liberal media My other is that people are underestimating i think uh, the 2018 and then 2020 really changed the electorate from what it has been for you know decades in ele- in off-year elections in terms of 2018 and then 2020 obviously a massive surge in presidential vote the polls may be under missing trump voters missing republican voters who are you know shy of pollsters and don't like talking to them and keep their thoughts themselves and then vote for the republican the polls could also be is because of the voter screens they're using and so forth could be underestimating the Democratic vote Is they're assuming where it's 2014 all over again, Democratic president and uh, or 2010 and, uh, you know, the on off year election that will go against them. We're going to get that kind of turnout. So I that's the one thing point I, I would is a sort of technical matter. The, the polls are hard to judge. They could be wrong either way, I guess, is the point I would make. It's not just that they could be wrong and missing Trump voters. They could be missing younger voters who will turn out in 2022 as they did in 2018. And if they do, we could have a result. You know, a House that looks a little, Democrats could hold the Senate and could even hold the House.
0: Well, can I mention as a point of personal privilege, my deep deep disappointment and a sort of soul-crushing take on what's happening here in Wisconsin because yes. and I know that people hate, you know I told you so and and I really wish profoundly that I had been wrong about this but you know Ron Johnson was the lowest of the low-hanging fruit for Democrats to pick off. Um that could have been the race that won them control of the United States Senate. There's so much baggage that Johnson had his approval ratings were so low. And for months, I was saying, but Johnson can get reelected if you nominate somebody with as much baggage as Mandela Barnes. And because of all the wish casting and because the Democrats have their own bubble, they decided, no, 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 we're going to do it. It's not going to be so bad. It will be fine. And um, I was saying, well, wait, wait till you see the the negative oppo ads. They drop on him. And of course, what a shock. We are now seeing stories in places like The New York Times that Democrats are now fretting because this deluge of negative ads, particularly on the issue of crime, is crushing Mandela Barnes. And and they had to know it was coming. They did it anyway. And I'm sorry, I'm afraid an eminently winnable Senate seat is going to be out of reach very soon. And I think that political scientists should should study what happened in Wisconsin for a very, very long time. And I hope the Democrats do a very clear eyed after action post-mortem on what happened here.
1: I mean, we'll see what happens. Barnes seems to be behind, and you've been right. And look, I preferred Godlewski. I think her name is as yeah. just knowing nothing about either candidate, substantively, really, but just Sarah because— Sarah Godlewski,
0: much more centrist.
1: Her image was so much more moderate. She would won statewide and run ahead of the ticket in 2018, I believe, and and so you know I thought it was risky, and it has turned out to have been risky. Now maybe Barnes will have something to come back here. He's down two or three points. He's not down, you know, eight. So um, we'll see what we'll see what happens. We'll see if the, they can hold the governorship while losing the set of race.
0: That's possible.
1: Yeah, they they could be a little more split ticket voting. I'm struck by that looking at the polls for all the talk about the vanishing split ticket voter and everyone's just, you know, tribal. There's a lot of truth to that, obviously. You just look in real time at these polls in Georgia, Kemps up, I don't know, average of six or so over Abrams, Warnock's up an average of four, let's say, over Walker that's 10 points, right? I mean, that's uh, that's a, not a trivial number of people, 5% of the people sw- switching from one party to the other, as I say, in the real in the same election day. So there's a little more split ticket voting around than, than rhetoric would suggest, you know?
0: I find that very, very interesting. Uh, you know, S- uh, Sarah Lungle did her focus group in Georgia uh, last night, and most of the people that she was talking to were going to vote for Brian Kemp, the Republican, over Stacey Abrams. And yet the same group Almost every one of them said they were going to vote all but one. were going to vote for Warnock, you know, incumbent uh, Democrat Warnock over Herschel Walker, which would indicate a lot of split ticket voting in Georgia. There's a possibility of that in Wisconsin as well, because the Republican candidate, uh, Tim Michaels, is um, he's got a lot of baggage. He's got a lot of baggage, too. But I have to tell you, I mean, here it is just back to back to back to back to back. Attack ads on Barnes and they end up coming from both the Johnson campaign from outside money. A lot of them have to do with crime. Crime's a big issue here. Um, and right now um, this is also taking place uh, at, the, at the time when there the trial of the guy who was responsible for that uh, Waukesha Christmas parade massacre is is ongoing. I mean this guy's on trial, and I gotta tell you, Bill, this story. okay, so the reason it's a big issue. I think we talked about this before on the on the on the podcast, is because he was out on a ridiculously low bail. And so, um, you know, bail and uh liberal prosecutors has become a big issue. Mandela Barnes is all in on eliminating cash bail, you know, has said he would he would support it, has long record of, you know, being, you know, there shouldn't be bail, should make it easier to get out of jail. Anyway, whatever. So people turn on their their news and they're getting just all of these ads about crime, which are working in both Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. At the same time, they see the news reports about this guy who killed all these people in Waukesha while he was out on bail. He's defending himself in the case. And if you Google the Waukesha trial, he's showing up basically in boxer shorts with no shirt on, cross-examining the witnesses, and I mean, it is just this incredible sort of circus, this deplorable circus. So the issue is front and center right now. It's the worst possible moment, et cetera. So anyway, that it's it's discouraging to me that 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 uh, there's so much resistance to uh, the the voices. Um, and I devoted a lot of time this week talking to you know Ruiz um, warning to the Democrats. Look if you want to win these races, you have to appeal to voters who want to think that you are moderate and centrist on issues like crime, et cetera. And in Wisconsin, at least in the Senate race, they're not doing that. So. Yeah. I mean, look, I think it's a mistake.
1: And I think if you talk to someone like uh, the two Democratic members of Congress from Virginia who are in tough races and close districts, Abigail Spanberger and Elaine Luria, they would say they have tried very hard to make clear they're not the same. I mean, they don't criticize barnes personally but that they come from a different wing of the democratic party if you step back you could say there's a fair number of moderate democrats have won primaries this year and are running reasonably moderate uh, campaigns but i i you know but look these states are different and these candidates are different and obviously we're only talking a few percentage points here of a swing and it turns out fetterman's the progressive candidate but he has a different feel than barnes right and 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 i I think so yeah different from wisconsin and stuff and so uh, and his opponents maybe is, is not an incumbent Senator, obviously. So, all these things make a difference. And so, yeah, I, I, but I look, generally, I couldn't. I totally agree. Very important for Democrats as much as they can. I mean, they have their own voters and their own primaries, and uh, Barnes is a lieutenant governor, and he, didn't, he wasn't sort of like crazy that he would win the nomination, but very important for them as much as they can to nominate candidates who could win, and also, I think, from your point of view and my point of view, candidates who are more sound on some of these issues and resist some of the progressive nostrums.
0: So around the country, are there any other races that are sort of below the radar screen? Um, You know, I I, I mentioned back in 2018, Democrats got themselves all worked up over races they thought that were winnable that turned out not to be winnable at all, like in South Carolina, et cetera. But what, what do you make of some of the polls out of North Carolina where Democrats are always sort of loosey with the football? Is it possible that is that in play? Is 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 Utah, which nobody really is talking about except for people like us. Is is I mean, is is, are there are there things that are sort of out of our our frame of vision that that might actually turn out to be a BFD?
1: Yes, that's a very good question. That's one reason I did that little tweet this morning. I mean, if you just come down from mars and look at the numbers yeah. nevada looks like a democratic state that could go republican yeah North looks carolina looks high. almost equally though on the numbers as like a republican state that could go democratic mm-hmm. now it has they keep you know it never quite works out in north carolina and the most frustrating state for democrats probably in the last 15 years repeatedly so there, maybe it won't and it probably won't but i do wonder about um North Carolina, Ohio, I think is the other one that everyone kind of vaguely assumes can't come through at the end. But there, I think they're just overdoing it. I mean, there is isn't the actual other senator from Ohio is a Democrat. I mean, it's like, wow, it's just amazing that the Democrat could win the Senate seat. So... Could Ryan do what Brown has done? It's possible against a flawed candidate. I think Utah is very interesting. We do not That's an interesting case study, sort of the opposite of Barnes, where the Democrats, to their credit in Utah, yeah, didn't exactly. nominate anyone once Evan, our friend Evan McMullin uh, was able to get himself on the ballot as an independent and make clear he was going to be able to mount a credible challenge to Mike Lee. He's raised more money than Lee in the third quarter. Lee's, there's a huge influx now of outside spending to save Lee. Again, ultimately, ultimately, if you had to bet, you know, you figure Lee probably makes it by four or five points or maybe even a little more. But I don't think that's a done deal. And uh, let's see what happens, what the dynamics are out there. So these states are different. Here's where I've, I've been putting it for the last 20 years, really, maybe 30. The, the people who said demography is destiny, these yes. states will revert to their fundamental uh, affiliation at the presidential level, and that will drive everything else. You know, uh, and so don't bet on some attractive ca- candidate who looks attractive at a red state, some blue, you know, Democratic candidate, or vice versa. They're just not going to make it. And that, and people like me said, I don't know, candidates matter. You know, these don't be so deterministic. I was wrong; they were right. You know, <laughs> the deterministic types were were, were right. But maybe that's sort of run its course or I'm not run its course, but maybe that's been overdone almost analytically. So people don't even look at Utah. And you, you see polls, I mean, legit authentic non-push polls and they're i don't know two-point gap between lee and McMullen. he's like oh, it looks kind of competitive to be an incumbent who's at 47 and isn't putting away his challenger and then no 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 it's utah can't happen so i i think there's uh, even some of these oklahoma there's some weird things going on in some of these states so i i'm a, and it could happen the other way too incidentally there could be republicans who win we've seen that in 2020 right in the rio grande uh, valley so where republicans competitive or won you know seats that everyone had assumed were democratic forever you know so there's a more malleability i would say than perhaps the conventional wisdom has it
0: well we're just going to have to uh buckle up for the next uh, few weeks bill crystal thank you so much for coming back on the podcast we always appreciate it thanks charlie i really enjoyed it the bulwark podcast is produced by katie cooper with audio production by jonathan siri i'm charlie sykes thank you for listening to today's bulwark podcast and we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again